Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Two quick announcements before we begin here. First of all, this episode with Gary Schnichter will include a free book giveaway possibility. If you go over to our Twitter handle on, at OnScript Podcast, you can retweet and follow for a chance to win there. So please take advantage of that if you're listening within reasonable distance of when this podcast comes out here at the end of April. And also, um, we have a listener Q&A on our other podcast the Biblical World Podcast. So if you'd like to submit a question for discussion about the history, culture, archaeology, context of the older New Testaments, you can do so by emailing uh, onscriptpodcasts at gmail.com or you could tweet a question to us for discussion. So those two things, the book giveaway and the listener Q&A that we'll be doing over at the Biblical World Podcast are things I want you to make um, to make sure are on your radar. So thanks so much for listening and enjoy this episode. Our guest today is Dr. Gary Schnichter, who is Distinguished University Professor of Old Testament at Cairn University School of Divinity. He's the author of Old Testament Use of Old Testament, a book-by-book guide which came out recently from Zondervan, uh, Old Testament Narrative, The Israel Story, which is to be released uh, later in the fall of this year, and Torah Story, an apprenticeship on the Pentateuch, now in its thoroughly revised second edition. And we're going to be discussing that book today. Gary was also a favorite professor of mine in undergrad, so it's a pleasure to have him back on the podcast. So, Gary, welcome back. Thank you, Matt. And as I said last time, being with my favorite students is a, it's a smooth <laughs> ride. Yeah, well, uh, I always enjoy uh, talking with you. I enjoy when we meet up at SBL and get to catch up on the things we're working on. So it's nice to share this the kinds of conversations we have with others as well. So you've got this second edition of Torah Story. Uh, maybe if you could just update our readers on some of the uh, major changes in this version of uh, this this textbook on the Pentateuch, um, and and maybe give a a bit of background on what happened in your own thinking that prompted the changes that you you made. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, well, one thing that is maybe a little unusual is um, many second editions, uh, people just write some extra stuff and put it in there. Um, I've felt like with the dramatic changes in academic delivery that I really wanted mm-hmm. to streamline the book. So I actually did add a lot of stuff. I mean, a lot has changed in Pentateuchal studies in the past 15 years, but overall, the word count is down 27,000 words. Uh, So it's streamlined throughout. And uh, the other thing I got the um, publisher to do is uh, work out how to not pad extra pages at the beginning and end of each chapter (laughs) so that it Kind of so wherever a chapter ends, the next chapter starts on the very next side of the page. So it's um I tried to get them to buy into this more streamlined book. So that's a lot of things went into that change, but um that's really mm-hmm. 
I'm absolutely certain, though, that students who use it are still going to complain that book is too long, <laughs> and that's going to be, you know, the review of it. The other thing that uh, is just superficial, but uh, when the first edition came out, uh, Zondervan Academic had just picked up several folks from McGraw Hill, and they were very excited about doing being like the first evangelical publisher to do real textbooks, is the way they put it. And so we were huh. all in meetings, all of us that were signed on back then. Every year we met and did all this stuff. Well, I mean, they did really look cool at the time, but I mean, they just looked dated. So, I mean, uh, the all the visual stuff was overhauled completely. I mean, we just started from scratch. We didn't even bother building off the other one in that sense. And then as far as um, maybe more substantial things, um, I think... Uh, I've done a lot more research over these years on the Bible's use of the Bible, which is uh -huh. kind of a strange feature for a textbook, but it's something that was a key part of Torah story in its first edition. So I know I came back around to a lot of those observations and dug down a little deeper and did a little more. In addition to, I mean, all the changes. I mean, one of the big things, people probably know this, but um, when the first edition came out, working on the final form of the biblical books was well-established in scholarship, but it was not in textbooks. So my yeah. textbook was really out of step um, back when I first did it, where now coming up to the second edition, all those things that were so novel and pushing the envelope, you know, everybody's doing this. So I didn't really have to be defensive or make an apology for why should we actually study the Bible in this book about the Bible? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and studying entire books as whole books as opposed to um, a more fragmented approach. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, even more than this, uh, back in the day when first edition came out, I mean, I don't think there was any textbooks on the Pentateuch that didn't have a running commentary on the source-critical uh, the sources of the Pentateuch and that theory. And my editor was just shocked that I wrote about it in like one paragraph in a sidebar and that was it. And that's not what my book is about. This book is yeah. before that. Um, people need what, whatever else they do. And I want them to do advanced studies. We need to start with the Bible. And so in that sense, the book's got continuity with the first edition. Yeah. And it, it also has a workbook coming out with it, right? Is that Or is that released? going to be released uh, simultaneously or a bit later? No, it'll come out simultaneously. And uh, the workbook was a lot of fun to to do. Um, I use a lot of research assistance. So um, we bounced around a lot of things. They, they brainstormed. Um, they went through all of my classroom antics and parlor games for all these decades. And we kind of culled this stuff. And so anyway, Put together the first part of that and I got permission from my um, boss. So I ran special um, versions of my course for a semester. We didn't do anything for homework, no exams or anything except the workbook. And the students gave me weekly unrestrained criticism on the textbook, <laughs> uh, on the workbook. And uh, uh, also Carmen Joy Imes agreed to test it in her Torah course as well. So we got a lot yeah. of negative feedback on the early version of it and really we were able to go through it and 
kind of get the bugs out and then I've retested all the weak spots and so forth. So mm-hmm. anyway, the workbook is, um, this isn't going to sound right. It's got a lot of different things in it. So it's designed to be fun. I'm doing air quotes right now. Fun. Yeah. But um, fun in the sort of academic way that students probably don't think are fun. Oh, I think I think they will. I mean, it's <laughs> the, it's the, the students who are hungry for it. And, and one of the things I like about the textbook is that you have questions at the end of each chapter. You have like basic questions and then more advanced questions and even research ideas for students to take further, which I think is is fabulous. And I think even scholars reading it will get research ideas from from going through that. So. Uh, that's a great feature. Now, the the title of the second edition is Torah Story. And so in, in what sense is Torah a story? I, I mean, that's that's really the the core idea, I guess, of uh, the textbook in a sense. So, uh, I mean, as far as all that goes, the, the argument is the same. The thesis is the same. So there's continuity between the two editions at that level. Um, I think that you know, from antiquity, the Torah has been uh, referred to as the law. I mean, that's what it was translated in the Septuagint as the law. The New Testament just followed that tendency. And I think that it especially is kind of a, um, makes the Torah wobbly once we get into the Protestant tradition, which pushes grace against law. And so, as though like there's no grace in Torah and as though, right, that God's instructions to Israel are not a gift. It's this, so it's this kind of um, heavy handed pushing back of our tradition against Roman Catholicism, which they associated with the Pharisees and against the Pharisees who were the enemies of Christ and sort of putting that sense of um, rigid legalism is sort of got pushed onto the Torah as its identity. Right. But right. the term Torah itself is, uh, it, it's not really used in a legal sense in the Torah. It's used in the sense of instruction, of teaching, of teach the next generation these things. So I think that's the part, the main part. I think the other thing is even, uh, and I might be being pushy here, but even a book like Leviticus it's a narrative. It's it's filled with laws, and Deuteronomy is too, but it, it's a narrative. So that narrative framework, that casing that it comes in, is really what its identity needs to be. We need to read Leviticus as story, story of God's instructions to Moses um, because of the radical change that just happened. His glory comes into the tabernacle, and this radically changes Israel's situation because his holiness puts them in a very dangerous situation. So by his mercy, Leviticus starts out, and the Lord called out to Moses and told Moses, tell the children of Israel this. And so the Israelites had been transformed in a a second from being former slaves in the wilderness to potential worshipers who were in much greater danger from God's holiness than they ever were from some tyrant in Egypt. And so Leviticus is the story of God's instructions to help them navigate the privilege of being ever ready to come into his courts. Yeah, I like that. And so if you miss the the context of the end of the book of Exodus, the narrative context, then you're going to maybe not grapple properly with 
what Leviticus is doing? Yeah, yes, and especially if we compare this to the way, you know, the Pentateuch was often studied. I mean, people can't even imagine this now, but all of the the legal collections were just lifted out of the Pentateuch. And so the covenant collection in Exodus 21 to 23, the holiness collection in Leviticus 17 to 26, and the Torah collection in Deuteronomy 12 to 26, they're all just lifted out and compared to each other without any regard for the context, as though they weren't always married to their context. Yeah. Yeah, and and I guess you could also extend that into the the way that subsequent narratives in say the former prophets also take up the conversation with the law as well. The and and I mean law specifically the laws in in the Pentateuch. Yes. So so like hearing Ruth in conversation with laws in the Pentateuch is is really important. It, it is. I mean, uh, we're, we're not here to talk about Ruth, but um, I think that that's a really good example that Ruth is easily read as just a short story, uh, almost like it's this evening holiday romance story or something that you might watch on the Hallmark Channel. But it's the story itself is actually built around a series of uh, what happens when you have two or more laws that bump into each other, because that's the thing. In in the classroom, we can deal with laws one at a time. But in real life, almost always, laws are bumping into each other. And so how do we honor what the Lord has taught if two or three laws are demanding different things of us because of all the contingencies of reality? Mm. Yeah, I really like that. I think that comes up in Joshua, other places as well. That's great. So uh, you, as I mentioned already, like your, your book, um, one, one of the things it it does is it weaves in some literary approaches that you've uh, picked up on. You talked about Old Testament use of Old Testament. Um, and one of those literary dynamics that you refer to is is called extended echo effect. That phrase comes up several times in the book. Someone's just wondering if you could give some examples of extended echo effect. Yeah, so a lot of um, uh, folks my age and maybe your age are familiar especially with chiastic structures, which are in narratives 1, 2, 3, 3, 2, 1, where the second half offers a mirror image of the first half by reversing its way through uh, various things. Extended echo effect is actually 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3. So um, an example that I guess all of us know in literature is like in the first half of The Cat in the Hat, right, it's he's the cat's balancing one, two, three. Oh, let's put another thing. One, two, three, four. Oh, let's put another thing. One, two, three, four, five. So there's that, there's that metrical shape to it. But in, it's very common in oral literature. So it's very common in the Bible, both chiastic structures and extended echo effect. So for example, when we're reading through Genesis one through 11, we hit the flood narrative and we feel like we've been there before because the whole earth is covered by water, okay. and the Lord sends his ruach, his spirit, to make way for a new beginning for humanity. And when he does so, he tells Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And and we're all saying, wait, we've, we've done all this before. And then there's genealogies in the same spot. And uh, so uh. The, the story is patterned after the previous story. And it it's both at the macro level, like I just said, but also at the micro level, like we can 
compare the fall of Adam and Eve and the uh, the drunkenness of Noah. Um, uh-huh. They're they're written to using some of the same terms and so on. So when we read about um, Isaac and he's <laughs> comes up to Avimelech and says, "Oh yeah, she's my sister," and we're like, I- "I've I've heard this before more than yeah. once." Yeah, and then when he's his slaves are digging a well, and they get into a fight with the Vimelech slaves, and then they rename the well the same thing that Abraham's slaves did. Uh, I mean, we're like we've been here, and I think where it really gets fun is this deception that we see passed down from generation to generation in the Hebrew ancestors. Uh, once we get to the sons of Jacob, I mean, and Jacob's with his uncle Laban. I mean, so there's deception. It's just this volcano that erupts and overflows across the second half of Genesis. And it's uh, it's really a lot of fun. And maybe the most um, substantial example is the Israelites in the wilderness, um, where the travel narrative, there's two of them in numbers, and they both sound like the travel narrative in Exodus. Huh. And the camp narratives in numbers, there's two of them. They both sound like the camp narrative in Exodus. And so when we're reading through numbers, we're, we're like, I've been here before. I'm in the wilderness for 40 years with the Israelites, listening to the same story over and over. And what's um, really wonderful in Numbers is that there's a little bit of a trick. We um, don't know when we are until the very end in chapter 33. Uh, It says that Aaron died in the 40th year. And it tells us which month, seven months in. And so then all of a sudden we we have to fly back to Numbers 20. We say, oh, this is the Israelite youth group. They sound exactly like their parents. I had no idea. <laughs> and so then then that causes this sort of disequilibrium for us as readers, and we have to figure out, well, if this is the second generation and they sound like the first generation, hmm. then how did they get into the land of promise? Why aren't hmm. they buried in the wilderness like their parents? So that extended echo effect is a just a very powerful tool in oral literature, but it sort of helps us to interpret each part in relation to its counterparts within the same book, or in this case, in in a serial like the Torah. And and would extended echo effect differ from or be a version of typological patternings? That's another uh, term or phrase that comes up in the book as well. Yeah, I distinguish the two um, because uh, typological patterns tend to be used expectationally and to refer to um, prophetic things. So, and it's probably beyond what we can talk about here, but in typological patterns, there's forward-looking and backward-looking typological patterns. So some backward-looking, those typological patterns are looking back to things that had no expectation in them originally, but the later thing pulls it forward, whereas some things are looking forward from the beginning. Um, So I'm distinguishing, I use the word extended echo effect as a literary device within a book or within a serial. There is no expectational bit to it at all. Whereas I use, I, I reserve the term typological patterns for expectational, uh, for example, you know, uh, the gospel is built all around the new Adam, the new Israel, the new covenant, the new creation, the new Moses. But these are all Old Testament expectational patterns that get filled up in the New Testament. I see. So they're not quite literary. They're more pr- prophetic. But uh-huh. 
on paper, they look exactly the same. It's just analogies between two narratives or institutions or people or whatever. So your book um, highlights both those uh, patterns, the extended echo effect, intertextuality, the relationship between texts. You do a lot of work uh, comparing texts to show how they might be written in ways to evoke another text. Um, so, it, which I think are all kind of unique fe- features of your approach to writing this textbook makes it, I, th- I think, very exciting. I love that way of reading the Bible. Um, what does that tell you about the nature of Scripture itself? Well, I that's, a, that's an awesome question. It's a systemic question. I'm not going to be able to do it justice because, I mean, this is what has um, uh, addicted me to my studies all these years. I mean, I, I'm amazed by biblical interconnections. So it's uh, exciting to see interconnections within a book like hmm. Genesis and to realize just how this is one of the great pieces of literature ever. Hmm. But uh, one of the points I try to make in Torah's story, um, and I try to enhance this in the second edition, is that each of the other books of the Pentateuch are Genesis-shaped so that there's this real sense of in Leviticus or Numbers or even Deuteronomy where Genesis plays a part in how we understand those in a concrete way, and those things can be um, pulled out. So, for example, the way that the tribes, um, in the parts of of Numbers we don't read, uh, the way that the tribes march or camp around the um, uh, tabernacle, that social world, those dynamics between the tribes come right out of the Genesis narrative. And when we get into the part of numbers that we do read, uh, where they're wrestling with the pe- uh, different folks in the wilderness um, who hate them, the Edomites and the Moabites especially, those dynamics internationally in the world of the Israelites those are all shaped by the Genesis stories too. So that the social dynamics of numbers within the tribes and within their world are all Genesis shaped. Uh, So that's just within the Pentateuch. So I guess that's still literary because it's within this serial that's intentionally written together. But I think one of the things I try, there's a part of each chapter called Another Look. Uh-huh. And so I use that another look to just step back and connect with something else with each chapter of Torah story. But the thing I probably do more than anything else is I look at how other parts of the Bible are reading and interpreting Torah. Hmm. So whether it's the prophets or the Psalms or the other narratives in the Old Testament, and then occasionally I even get into the New Testament with yeah. Romans or the teachings of the Lord. <laughs> No, I really uh, I appreciate that that attention to how how texts connect and 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 also the it it gives a deeper sense of um, to the idea that Genesis is is this foundational book. Um, I was thinking of the phrase that Walter Moberly uses: "The Old Testament of the Old Testament." Yeah, he calls Genesis, and and I think uh, in a similar way to the role that the Old Testament has for the New, um, Genesis has for the rest of the Pentateuch or 
really the rest of the Old Testament. I, I would say that, but I've, I'm still conflicted, Matt. I mean, I, I can't decide if the rest of the Torah is Genesis-shaped or if Genesis is Torah-shaped. Sure, yeah. I, I mean, I can never decide that because there, it's easy to then go back into Genesis and say, well, look, here's redemption and uh-huh. to just here, here's covenant. And so these yeah. these profound uh, backwards readings, I guess, you know, that Genesis might just actually be Torah-shaped. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, and you you note that, uh, just as an example from Genesis, uh, Judah is this character who moves from being a, a fairly wily fourth son of Jacob to a, a leading figure in the book as it comes to its conclusion. And this might be some of the back influence of the rest of the narrative as a whole as we see it moving into the monarchy later. So how do you, first of all, how do you see that transformation of Judah happening uh, in the book of Genesis and then taking shape beyond the book of Genesis? I mean, that's that's such an important one because even when we talk about Genesis 37 to 50, Uh still, besides me, I think everyone still calls it the Joseph story. Yeah. It's like, well, but Judah's a main character and Joseph doesn't get the blessing. Judah does. Yeah. And so I really try to push back against that tendency for the sake of students only. It's not a real thing that keeps me up at night. But to, to say, no, this is the story of the sons of Jacob. And so thereafter, the birthright, uh, that is the uh, double share of the of the inheritance or the blessing that is who's going to be in charge. And so, you know, this story coming into it in first reading Genesis 37 is setting us up for a, a wild ending because we think we know what's going to happen as we predict ahead. If there is, if we didn't know the ending, yeah. um, that the oldest brothers have disqualified themselves, right? Reuben, because he's slept with um, Rachel's concubine after uh, Rachel died and Simeon and Levi because they're bloody vengeance against the people of Shechem. And then we're not surprised in the slightest that Judah, it's his bright idea, hey, let's sell Joseph into slavery. And he gets all the other brothers to agree. So he leads them in this treachery. And so we're kind of smug at the end of chapter 37, say, see, I knew it, it's going to be Benjamin. Just like the rest of Genesis has been younger over older, and Rachel had the infertility, and so Benjamin is the rate youngest son of Rachel, and ta-da! And then all of a sudden we realize we're wrong when we start reading uh-huh. Genesis 38, and it's a whole story about Judah and what a jerk he is. And we're like, well, wait, something's going on here. And it's a whole other chapter about how treacherous Judah is, and I mean, he's really terrible here. Um, I think we all know all the fun parts of Genesis 38, and any students that don't, they're going to love it. Um, this is not a rated PG-13 chapter. And so Judah, at the end of this chapter, we're, we're like, he is such a hypocrite. He is so treacherous. He's so awful. And we have to agree with him when he says to um, Tamar, his daughter-in-law, she is more righteous than I, or mm-hmm. maybe she is righteous, not I. <laughs> but when we meet Judah again, some many years later, when his family is starving because of the famine, it's Judah's idea to offer himself in place of Benjamin. And he says, I'll take responsibility for him. And he stands there with this Lord of Egypt 
and tells the Lord, you can't have Benjamin. No, take me as your slave forever. You have to let Benjamin go. And we're all like laughing or whatever because we know about Joseph. But then Judah says, I made myself a pledge for Benjamin. And that word, pledge, is the key thing that leads us back to interpret what happened to Judah because it was when Tamar showed Judah his staff and seal and his um, his cord that he gave as a pledge so he could sleep with her. Yeah. Um, that uh, we said, oh, wow. And that pulls us back and we, we re-examine his confession before Tamar. And so that's the first time where Judah makes a confession. It's as though Tamar puts a mirror up to his face and says, oh, the person that got me pregnant, dad, guess who? Here's his yeah. credit card and driver's license. And Judah's <laughs> floored. So I think, um, I, I think I'm going to, how I read that, uh, I don't read this in Genesis that way, but in class, I'll share that with you. Uh, in Torah story, this isn't on the surface. Mm. But in class, I would go even further and say, you know, what we get a clue of is from Leviticus chapter 26, where the person who confesses their sin, and this is speaking of Israel in captivity, uh-huh. Uh-huh. that's a sign that their heart is being circumcised. And so if Judah comes to the place because of Tamar's um, trickery, where he confesses his sin, then that must be a sign that there's been this change in his heart that we might use the metaphor um, circumcision of the heart. And that helps us explain why is Judah so different later that he earns Hmm. the blessing? Hmm. And Jacob gives it to him rightly because he made a deal with him. You know, uh, you you can take Benjamin, but you better bring him back. Hmm. And Judah does one better than that. He restores the beloved son Joseph to the father and he offers himself in place of Benjamin. And all of this, of course, I mean, this is kind of what you're getting at is we read this if we want to. We can sit with ancient Israel and Judah and think about the Davidic covenant and how Benjamin finds um, a place with Judah that is the Davidic kingdom, not with the northern kingdom, not with Joseph's tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim, but no, Benjamin stays down south with Judah. And so there's this, right, there's going to be some real delight for us to read Genesis with the political feud between the hill country of Judah and the hill country of Ephraim. Mm, such a powerful story. Um, let, let's move on and and jump over to Leviticus. I think it's a book a lot of Christians misunderstand. And, and your textbook, as you're uh, trying to present this book to students, um, wh- what's a misunderstanding that you're trying to confront uh, in that section of your book? I, I think there's kind of a two things and they're interrelated, but um, one thing is we don't, we as um, modern Christians, we don't tend to have the sense of the danger of holiness that we should. Uh, The danger that really Israel's suddenly aware of when this God, his glory comes into the tabernacle and, you know, there's all these regulations because they could contaminate the tabernacle and stir up the wrath of God. And he tends to have a really, really bad temper. And he tends to um, uh, 
slay people. I mean, w- w- we know this already. So, um, so the, the holiness of God is one thing. And I think the other thing that um, Christians do a good thing with is we tend to um, focus on, well, the real problem is sin. And, and I don't want to take anything away from that. Yes, sin is a real problem. And we do need atonement uh, so that the wrath of God can be appeased and we can have a relationship with him. But a lot of times modern Christians think, oh, well, if my sins are forgiven and I can go on to the celestial real estate above, I'm good. Well, Leviticus, I think, pushes back at that because Leviticus also has all of this ritual pollution. So there's these ritual standards, um, both dietary regulations and also uh, various uh, life situations that create ritual pollution so that our relationship with God isn't just about sin, but it's also about um, worship and what's required to worship this holy God. So there's the scary part about worrying about polluting the tabernacle. And Leviticus is primarily not about the individual worshiper. It's about the danger that Israel as a community comes into by putting ritual pollution on the tabernacle and about putting sin on the tabernacle. So it's God's holiness and that keeping his dwelling place clean, which is uh, important. So I think Christians, modern Christians, tend to not be in tune with the need to focus on a relationship with God beyond getting our sins forgiven. Mm. And it's it's amazing to me. This was pointed out to me by someone else. Uh, you know, I'm a John Master, the older one. Mm-hmm. But Leviticus begins and ends with um, voluntary offerings. It doesn't begin and end with mandatory ones. It begins with an opportunity to worship and it ends with an opportunity to make vows and worship. And I've thought, that's such a really great point. And that goes beyond this, get me out of trouble, Uh. get rid of my sins, let me have a relationship with God. There's more to a relationship with God than just our our own sinfulness. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. I think as as I've taught in Leviticus, one of the things that students are often really surprised at is that how few of the offerings really deal with what we would call sin, our moral kind of categories for sin or social categories. But primarily, these sacrifices are dealing with ritual pollution, and and I think yeah. that's a something hard to connect with and know what what's the point of contact for us as Christians reading this material today. So. Maybe if, if you could talk a little bit more about that, like what you find is the most fruitful analogy for thinking through ritual pollution and Christian life today. Yeah, I mean, I think that I'm with you. We have to start by actually studying Leviticus because God's holiness hasn't changed. Uh, the difference for us is Christ is not only our Passover lamb. Let's say that he... Uh-huh died in place of us for our redemption. But he's also, I'm using the word from Isaiah 53, our guilt offering, Mm. which helps us with sin. But then this is kind of important. He's also our purification offering. That's what the Day of Atonement is about. And that's mainly what, say, the book of Hebrews is about. So that um, it's not just that Christ died for our sin. Christ died as our Passover and our Day of Atonement offerings as well. So that when we talk about worship the Lord, 
that's mainly what Hebrews is getting at. And so that yeah. we need to, we trust in Christ, not just for forgiveness of sin, but we trust in Christ that we can come before this God that's just as holy as he ever was, and that Christ is our um, purification offering so that we may come before the Lord and worship him and serve him. Yeah. Yeah, that really raises, you know, kind of um, adds depth to the atonement. Um, because I think sometimes we can have the understanding that, you know, in Christ, God sort of turns the dial that way down on his holiness. And we no longer have to, it's not just that we don't have to deal with the ritual offerings anymore, but we also don't have to deal with the holiness of God. And whereas if, if Christ is understood in terms of a purification offering, it definitely changes the picture there. Yeah, and I think students would do well to come out of Leviticus and read the book of Hebrews just with thinking about how often it's actually talking about the purification offering and day of atonement and how little it's actually talking about sin and the guilt offering. Yeah. Um, Now, one of the uh, patterns or uh, texts that has really perplexed me I've wondered about, and you brought it up in your book, are number 16 and 25. So number 16, Korah's rebellion. And you have this dramatic account where Moses or Aaron intercedes, runs through the camp with a censer and, and, and prevents a greater disaster. And then in, in Numbers 25, you have Israel sinning with the Moabites and worshiping their gods. And then you have Phineas, you know, stabbing this couple through with a spear and he's given a covenant of peace. So you have these two priestly interventions. We could even throw Exodus 32 into the mix where the Levites strap on their swords and go kill other Israelites to prevent a further disaster. So right. um, yeah. it, you've got these priests stopping violent outbursts of God. What do you make of that in relation, relation to the priestly role in, in general? Uh, I mean, that that's really great enough. Um, this is an area where I think uh, I've I've learned some things or whatever. I've um, I'm more in tune with it than maybe I was all those years ago with the first edition. Um, for the situation in Leviticus uh, number sixteen, number sixteen and seventeen actually is kind of a composite sort of story, and the outcome after the Lord. Uh, has the earth swallow up Korah and the other rebels, and then there's this whole trouble with the um, Levites that uh, wind up going down with him. Well, then there's also the Israelites who are like having the same problem, and so the plague's coming out, and that's where Aaron goes out into the middle of those. And then at the end of all that, okay, fine, let's start over. Every tribe, pick someone, put the staff in before the Ark of the Covenant, who's ever buds, that's who I picked. Oh, look, I picked Aaron. Now stop it. He's the one. That, that, there's no other. And then I think what's really interesting, and um, Ben Noonan got me to think about this. Um, in chapter 18, there's this pause where there's some instruction. So it's a break from the story. And in chapter 18, the Lord reaffirms that he is giving the Levites, he's gifting the Levites to the tribe of Aaron to do whatever Aaron's tribe wants them to do. But the underlying push through that whole chapter is because Aaron's family, the priests, have to bear the burden of holiness. And so they need the 
Levites then, their primary job is to protect, that is, keep the laity away from the tabernacle and keep the laity away from the danger of God's holiness. So there's all these menial tasks, of course, that the Levites have to do, but their main function is to protect Israel and to then, I don't know that Aaron's family or the high priests, uh, the priests themselves are protectors. They're more, they take on the burden of holiness. So maybe there's two functions here. There's the Uh Levites who protect Israel sometimes by killing people and the priests, this um, smaller group within the Levites who it's their privilege to lead worship, but it's their burden to um, have to deal with the holiness. So, for example, even the holy robes that Aaron, the high priest, puts on, well, I learned this from somebody else, Nancy Erickson, his robes are just like the tabernacle. It's like he tabernacles himself to go in to before the Lord, and then that makes his clothing holy. So, he can't wear it outside the tabernacle. He must change in there because it's the priestly burden to deal with God's holiness. Um, So that would be along uh, the lines of maybe what I've been thinking more about the connection between Leviticus, sorry, Numbers 16 and Numbers 25 in more recent years. But the story is really, it's a wild story in those couple yeah. of chapters. Yeah, and just the juxtaposition between, you know, these pretty violent situations and then being granted a covenant of peace afterward. And maybe that's... That's a deep irony. Yeah, I, and I've wondered too if there's an aspect of, you know, we, we can't live like this uh, on a regular basis. So the the need for the priesthood to facilitate peace via the covenant and the ritual system is is paramount then in what follows. Um, but anyway, it, yeah, fascinating stories. So thanks for that. At, at various points in the book, I, I notice in terms of the literary techniques you're observing in the Pentateuch, you, you discuss ambiguity in biblical narratives and, and how they occur at moments where you would think there would be a desire to get things clear. Like, what exactly is wrong with Cain's offering? Uh, could you be a little more clear on that, author of Genesis? Um, how about Ham's sin? Um, Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu, bring strange fire. What on earth does that mean? Uh, Moses' sin that disqualifies him from entering the land. We, we have to kind of speculate around to make sense of that. You could even push further into Saul's sin, David's sin when he takes the census. What's so bad about that? So... These are key moments, and they're shrouded in in real mystery. So, why would the biblical writers do that to us? Um, you know, are they just assuming knowledge that we don't have, or are they doing something on purpose? Yeah. So, it's these are notorious texts, and I mean, you you know, because you're in OT scholarships, mixing it up. I mean, there's new theories about what's the sin of Ham, what's the sin of Cain. I mean, they're still coming out. What's the sin of Aaron's son? So, these are. Um, particular um, passages. So I think some people might mishear me when I talk about intentional ambiguity. So I do not think the biblical authors are problematizing the text, air quotes, like some kind of modern uh, or postmodern sort of um, interpreter might do. 
I, I think that the function of the text is instructional. And so that kind of drives how I'm interpreting it. And this is uh-huh. certainly an interpretation on my part. I don't know any more about the answer to these texts than anyone else, but I'm I'm saying, well, it's probably not a coincidence that the sin of Cain, the sin of the sons of God, the sin of Ham, the sin of the sons of Aaron, the sin of Moses, that these texts are like magnets for all these interpretations, probably none more than the son of, sons of God with the daughters of humans. And so if the goal of these texts is instructional, then it would make sense that they would not answer our questions, but provoke our questions, bait readers in a sense. And they're, they're not all of one sort, like the sin of Cain and the sin of um, Aaron's sons. There's not enough information. That's why we struggle with it. Hmm. The sin of the sons of God, the sin of, the, of Ham, the sin of Moses and Aaron, there's too much information. Those textual clues sort of invite us down competing rabbit trails. And so all the views disagree based on the scriptures. Some favor this contextual inference. Other interpreters favor that contextual inference. And so the Bible then creates a situation not to answer all of our questions so we can sit back smugly after a big meal, but it invites us to continue to wrestle with it, especially in these important points where we need to teach the up-and-coming generation and ourselves, beware, don't fall into sin. And so we need to debate the sin stories. Yeah, really um, a fascinating dynamic. And I think of, um, to go, go back to Walter Moberly as well, uh, he he talks about how Genesis 4, with the, the acceptance of Abel's offering, he, he talks about how the story foregrounds apparent divine favoritism and the need to deal with that in the life of faith, that this is going to be this is going to be part of the story you're going to have to uh, deal with as a reader and as a person of faith. Right. And I mean, that's that's exactly what Korah and the other rebels are worried about is, oh, yeah, how can you guys get to do all the cool stuff and we have to just carry everything and we can't even look at it? And so I think that that idea of God's election, that really bristles us as modern readers. And so yeah. we might have an especial, uh, especially difficult time with that God does choose. And it's easy for us to maybe pick on something like favoritism, whereas you know, it's interesting, though, that the story doesn't just end that way. In Genesis 4, the Lord says, come on, Cain, what's going on? And he, the Lord tries to reason with Cain, like, don't let this predator at your door overtake you. Yeah. And so, and even after he murders his brother, the word brother's used seven times in the passage, mm. he murders his own brother over this uh, this issue of not being able to relate to God as well. The Lord still doesn't give up on Cain. I mean, yeah. The Lord still extends mercy to him, so there might be favoritism there, but there, it's more complicated than that. Yeah, and I and I think I think his point, Moberly's point, was like dealing with the the problem of apparent favoritism and how to how you're going to respond to that. Like what the, it puts it right in our faces, yeah, and says this is going to be something as the story moves on that you're going to have to wrestle through. That's a great point. Um, so you. You use the word apprenticeship in your subtitle in the, the subtitle of your book, Torah Story and Apprenticeship on the Pentateuch. What do you what are you hoping to convey through the idea of apprenticeship? Uh, the primary thing is humility, but beyond humility, an apprenticeship is an old fashioned term, but it's it's the willingness to be mentored, to come to the scriptures <laughs> looking for guidance, to let the Torah be our vocation. Uh, so the term apprentice, of course, is just the old fashioned term of 
we would somebody would apprentice with someone to learn how to do a trade. And so there's not actually a paying job that Torah is offering, but the um, a relationship with God and living life according to his redemptive plan. Well, that's a worthy end, but it requires not just knowing Torah. It requires sort of a um, obedient and submissive study of Torah. So an apprenticeship tries to get at those uh, effective ends, not just, okay, do you know the Ten Commandments? Oh, do you know uh, all the different kinds of sacrifices? Oh, do you know? So it's not just about knowledge. It's really about how this instruction from the Lord uh, can lead us in the way of redemption. You've got a forthcoming book on Old Testament narrative that's arriving this fall. If you had to single out something interesting that you've wrestled through while working on that, what would it be? Well, it is this other book of mine. It's absolutely my fault. Um, So I'll, I'll make it simple. I'm doing all the traditional historical narratives in the book, but I'm also doing Daniel as narrative. So for years, um, I think you know this and many other people know this, Daniel's not a prophet. So it's kind of weird that we treat him like one of the prophets. Now we call him a prophet like Christ did in a general sense of the visions point forward to something, but this is a story. And so with two two of my colleagues here, we had a a debate one time because I teach Daniel in OT narratives. (laughs) And so my one colleague says, no, no, no. Daniel is a prophet. It's like, a- Amos is with the prophets. He's not a prophet. Well, like, well, yeah, but his book is prophecies. What he's saying is he's not a professional prophet. He's, <laughs> and then my other colleague who I was looking to for help, he says, no, no, no. Daniel's a wisdom figure. We should te- treat him, mm. teach him in the wisdom class. It's getting pulled into all the genres. And so I was like, oh my. So what we're actually doing with this series that's coming out, we're doing Daniel both with the prophets where he's, so the book on the prophets, the other author writing that, she's treating Daniel with the prophets for the teachers that teach it with prophets. My book on narrative, I'm treating Daniel with the narratives uh, for people that want to teach it with Esther and Ezra Nehemiah and the other post-exilic narratives. So in short, Daniel is um, something I was pretty intimidated by early in my teaching career and didn't want to have anything to do with. So needing to write a chapter on Daniel in a student textbook, ugh. That's a tough. That's the, that's the thing that scared me the most about the uh, textbook. So it's my own fault. I'll look forward to discussing that book with you at a later point. That's your Old Testament narrative book. Uh, but for now, thanks so much for joining Onscript to discuss uh, Torah story. I encourage people to check that book out um, and uh, use it as a textbook or as for personal study. It's, it's a wonderful book. So Gary, thank you so much. Matt, thank you so much for having me. It is a thrill, and um, thanks for not doing a speed round. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.